My name is Tellus Fuller. I'm the youth pastor here on staff at Grace, and I'm super excited to get to share the word with you guys this morning. We are going to be in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, and I'm super excited to share this word because I think it's a timely word that's going to help us in the shift that we're going in moving forward, maybe the shift that we're already in. Um, I want to look at a seemingly unrelated story, something that I haven't done before. It's a consecutive passage, but a seemingly unrelated story. And last week, if you were here, if you watched online, Pastor Jim gave an amazing word about questions that we should ask God. Anybody heard that message? Questions we should ask God? Anyone blessed by that message? He laid out some questions that we should ask God and some questions that we shouldn't ask God. It was an amazing message. If you haven't heard it, I really encourage you to go listen to that word. And something that he brought up during that message was that we aren't in a seasoned church, but we're in a shift. That this isn't just a season that we're going through, but we're actually in a shift. That the church has shifted. The world has shifted. Not that God has shifted, but God is expecting us to maybe do something differently. Not change our message, not compromise what we believe, but maybe shift. We've been in this season of quarantine pandemic for weeks on weeks, what feels like far too long. Way longer than any one of us thought we'd be in it. And I don't know if you remember this, at the beginning of this whole situation, you probably heard one of these two terms, or maybe both of them. How many of you guys remember when people, as soon as this started, people started saying faith over what? Fear. Faith over fear. And then seemingly on the other side, we started hearing people say, love your neighbor. You guys remember those two? Faith over fear, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, faith over fear. These, these seemingly contradictory statements that are both rooted in the gospel but we have seemed to draw lines saying, are you a faith over fear guy or a love your neighbor guy? This story, I think, marries those two things. For some reason, we now have become really good at separating what Jesus never called us to separate. We have become very good at divorcing things Jesus has married. I don't know why that is, but here in this story, I think that there is a great example of how we can see the same Jesus in two different situations, not divorce the two, but actually marry the two. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. So get ready, everybody. We're going to read a bunch of verses. It says this, Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 17. And after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him, come and heal his servant. And when they had came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he's the one who built for us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. And when he was not far from the home, when he was not far from the home, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
Verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. He drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched her and touched the beer, excuse me, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. And the report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. This is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about faith and love. Faith and love. We see in this story and throughout the Gospels that Jesus was always impressed by faith and moved with compassion. Impressed by faith and moved with compassion. That's what I want to title this message today, Impressed to Move. Impressed to Move. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you so much. Thank you for the gift of grace. God, I'm asking that you would do what we can't do in this moment, that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears to hear what you want to tell us. God, less of me and more of you. God, we're asking that your spirit would come into this place and change our hearts and that we'd leave this place different than when we walked in. Father, we love you so much, and more importantly, you love us. So Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like a Jesus today than we did yesterday in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Uh, last year, I went to uh, Paris for the first time. And when I went to Paris, it was an amazing trip. It was my first time in Europe alone, and I was super excited to be in the city, to see all the sights, do all the things. And when I was in Paris, I remember realizing there is so much culture, so much history, so much art in this city that I have to see. I don't have the time. And so I made sure that I pretty much didn't sleep, and I went to everything I possibly could. I went to the Eiffel Tower. I went to Sacre Coeur. I had an eclair. I, I ate a baguette. I did all the things that you have to do when you're in Paris, right? And so when I went to Paris, I remember that, I, I, I remember that the Louvre was in Paris. Now, I'd never been there. I'd kind of heard stories about this legendary museum and this big triangle-looking or pyramid-looking sculpture and how it had so much beautiful art in it. And as I was approaching the Louvre, I actually didn't know, I don't know why, but I didn't know that actually one of the most famous paintings in the whole world is in the Louvre, one of the most famous paintings. And if you've been to the Louvre, you know what I'm talking about, it's the Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa is in the Louvre. And as I'm walking into this museum, realizing that this is a place where few people get to go to, some people fly just to get to, and had this amazing painting, this painting with so much renown, this painting with so much uh, uh, art and artistic culture, and it means almost more than the painting does itself. And walking into this museum, there's no question on where the painting is. The whole crowd is going towards one room. The whole building is going towards one room. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of art in this building, and yet everybody's going to this one painting. I remember following the crowd, going to this painting, and as I'm approaching the room, it pretty much has its own room if you've ever been there. And I walk in, I see this line, you have to zigzag through the line, you can't even get close to the painting. And I remember getting up to the line, seeing the Mona Lisa for the first time, 
and thinking, that's really underwhelming. <laughs> that thing is really not impressive at all. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's not big. It's not even my cup of tea. It doesn't even look that good to me, to be honest. But the thing is that everybody goes to see this one painting, right? It's, it's like the painting, the Mona Lisa. And I remember seeing this painting and I was like, that is very unimpressive to me. I'm not really, like, amongst this entire building, this is what everyone goes to see? And I remember going throughout the rest of the museum and being moved to tears at some of the other paintings that nobody will ever know the name of, and then not even being impressed by the biggest painting there. And sometimes I think that's how we are with God, that we mistake what God is impressed by and what God is moved by. We sometimes assume what God is impressed by. And we assume what God is moved by. Maybe it's not actually what we think it is. We have a story of a centurion man. These two people, a centurion man and a widow. Two people who, for the sake of time, I can't even get into, but are so opposite that it's actually almost astounding, incredible, amazing. We have a centurion who is a Roman soldier in charge of a century, in charge of a hundred men. And he is pretty much this, this, the big guy in town. Wherever he's at, everybody knows his name. He has respect. He has renown. He has money. He has power. He has authority. Everybody knows who this centurion man is. And he comes up to Jesus because he had heard, no doubt, all the rumors about this guy who could apparently heal. He comes up to Jesus and says, I have a servant, we don't even get the servant's name, I have a servant who is sick, but whom I dearly love, and I heard that you can do miracles, so maybe you can come and heal him for me. But the issue is, he doesn't go himself, he's a man in authority, so who does he send? He sends some of his Jewish elders. Now, when he sends these Jewish elders to Jesus, they come to him first doing what? Saying, man, this is centurion. He has a servant. He has built so much. He built us a church, you know, Jesus. He's really worthy of all these things. He's worthy to have you do this for him because of. And then Jesus ends up walking on this road with him. As soon as Jesus walks on this road with him, he actually sends some friends this time and says, actually, I'm a man under authority. You're a man under authority. I can do that. I assume you can do that. If you just say the word, then maybe my servant will be healed. This amazing moment, if you've been in church, you've heard this story about this guy's amazing faith. And every time I read this story, I think about one practical thing. What does it take to impress God? How, how, if, if you would just go with me for a second, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent being, a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere at once, how can Jesus marvel and be impressed at a man? What does it take to impress God? This man says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but if you just say the word, then my servant will be healed. Jesus says, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. He marveled at him, sends his friends home, and says, your servant is healed. He hoped. I think when we are met with a potential situation, when we are met with crisis, we have one of two choices. We can either go with hope or despair. And now we don't have to look too far to see a crisis situation. We can look no further than today or our friends or our family and see a crisis situation. And we can say, I'm either going to have hope or I'm going to have despair. And this centurion man had Hope, But the issue with this centurion man is that he immediately tried to prove his worthiness to God. 
What does he do? He sends these Jewish elders as if to say, hey, God, I know I'm not necessarily one of y'all, but like, could you, uh, maybe you like these Jewish elders. I know you're a Jewish guy. I know you kind of came to the Jewish people. So what if I send you some Jewish elders? Also, tell that guy Jesus that I build a church for him. Also, tell that guy Jesus that I love his people. Also, tell that he tries to prove his worth to God to get God to do something for him. What I realize in this story is that distance from God encourages religion. When you're not close to God, it really makes you think about what can I do for God? What does God want to see me do? The religious actions and duties and responsibilities, the religious jargon, maybe if I go back to church, maybe if I give some more money, maybe if I read my Bible just a little bit more, we have these religious duties that are almost rote when we're in crisis to now try and get God to love us back when we've been so far from him. Distance from God encourages religion. And the issue with this man is that he doesn't understand in this moment that there is nothing that he can do to make him worthy of God blessing him. Something that we might need to understand is that there's nothing that we can do to make us worthy of God blessing us. The worthiness, our worthiness is not based off of our work, it's based off of his And when we think about our worthiness, trying to prove our worth to an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God, we can't first go to what can I do for you. We first always have to go to what can you do for me. That sounds a little bit backwards because we're always in this culture thinking, well, what can I do? How can I prove it? What can I, if if something is given to us for free, it's almost looked down upon because we didn't work for it. We are looking and desperate to be impressive in this culture. We need it. We want it. We're craving to be impressive. We want to impress everybody. We want to show people what we look like. We want people to admire us. And I'm thinking, what does it take for this God-man to be impressed by this centurion soldier? Your worthiness is not based off of your work. It's based off of his. We see that Jesus, regardless of him saying, oh, I'm worthy for you to do this for me, Jesus approaches the house. He comes to him. And The interesting part about this story is that once Jesus starts walking into the house, the man all of a sudden has a change of heart. Once Jesus gets close to the house, it says Jesus drew near to the house, and then the centurion soldier sent a few more people, but this time he didn't send religious elders. This time he actually sent friends, as if to say maybe your relationship with, it's not about the religious duties that you do, but maybe the relationship that you have. That he's saying, actually, when, when, when Jesus approaches this man, when Jesus draws close, the beautiful thing is that worthiness dries up. He immediately says, after Jesus draws close, actually, now that I think about it, I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to stand under my roof. And Jesus looks at this man, or looks at his friends and says, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. All of Israel. These people who were probably following Jesus were probably like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're your people, though. You've been walking with these disciples for how long? And you're saying you, they don't even have the faith? But you're saying this dude who isn't even here has the faith to impress God. The reason why this man's attitude changed when Jesus drew near to the house is because proximity brings perspective. Perspective changed because Jesus' proximity changed. When Jesus drew near to the house, all of a sudden, his view of Jesus and his view of himself could not stay the same. 
He had a, now a responsibility in his soul to change his mind as soon as Jesus drew close. When his, perspe- when his perspective changed, his posture changed. And we already know that, when, that distance is something that encourages religion, but the beautiful thing is that closeness with God encourages relationship. Distance from God encourages religion, but closeness with God encourages relationship. When he saw Jesus rightly, he could finally see himself rightly. He now understood who Jesus was and who he was. He was no longer worthy, but the crazy thing is now he was impressive. How many of us are searching to be so worthy of God's grace and his blessing that we are actually unimpressive to God? We were aiming to be worthy. We sent people, we sent our religion ahead of us saying, God, look at what I have done for you. And as soon as Jesus gets close, something in us has to shift. And now it's not about are we worthy. His worthiness dries up and and now he is now impressive to God. He sees that Jesus is way greater than he is. He sees the difference in the span that he can't get across the bridge. He can't get across the the, the distance that it takes from him to get to God. And now what he was once measuring with worthiness, he's now measuring with relationship. This man was impressive to Jesus. The closer that we get to Jesus, the clearer we can see our situation. We see this man who has now been impressive to God. And it's not because he was trying harder. I think some of us have this tendency, this mindset to, when I want to impress God, when I want God to be pleased with me, I'm going to do a little bit more. I'm going to add some more faith. As Pastor AJ said, I'm going to put some more faith on it. I'm going to do a little bit more work so that God is a little bit more pleased with me. It's a trap that we all fall into. It's a trap that, 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 that this man was falling into because he realized that the way I relate to Jesus was by my work. I needed God to love me by what I did. And the thing he didn't understand yet is that Jesus was fulfilling the law as he was standing there. That Jesus was fulfilling everything that he said he would fulfill, that people said he would fulfill hundreds and hundreds of years before. And now Jesus has the opportunity to fulfill a longing in his life. It wasn't that he was trying harder with his faith. It's more so that he was submitting more. Maybe an impressive faith isn't about doing more. Maybe it's about submitting more. Maybe an impressive faith isn't about, God, I want to show everything I got. I want to be impressive to you. I want to impress everybody around me. Because here's the thing, guys. Sometimes the issue is that the things that impress God don't impress the world. And the things that impress the world sometimes don't impress God. There's a difference. We are looking at Jesus, and I think one of the biggest issues that we have is that we make God in our image instead of being made in his. And so we see what impresses the world, and we say, oh, well, the church loves it when I give, so that's what I'm going to do to be good with them. If I'm good with the church, then I must be good with God. Oh, man, it's so beautiful. When I stop saying those bad words, that's what makes me feel better, so God must love that. When I stop doing this and when I start doing that, when I stop doing bad things and start doing good things, people like it, so God must like it. We start measuring our relationship with God by our relationship with people. If people are pleased with me, then God's pleased with me. The issue is that God is different than us. The issue is that God is not a man. 
God is not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So as soon as we start to place God in the same way that we place man, we have no choice but to measure up with worthiness. And here's the issue, guys. When we measure up with worthiness, we understand that worthy in Christian culture is a really dangerous word because I hate to break it to you, but none of us are worthy. No one in this room is worthy for God to come see them. But that should encourage you, not discourage you, because he did anyway. That should encourage you because even though you weren't worthy, Jesus came to see you anyway. This man had an impressive faith. And we see almost the opposite situation with, or the opposite person with this woman. This, not just a woman, but this widow. And not just a widow, but a widow with no more kids. In this culture, it's not the same as it was back then. If you were a woman, you were already at a disadvantage in antiquity. There was not a lot of jobs you could have, reputable jobs. There wasn't really any respect that you could have. There wasn't a lot you could do. There weren't a lot of places you could go. You had to depend on your husband for most things. And when you see a widow here, we have to understand first that she was probably in one of the most difficult situations in her entire life. There was no coming back from this situation. And now we see that she's not just a widow, but she's a widow without a son. What we see here is a funeral for the son, but in some ways, in many ways, it's also a funeral for the widow. That she saw her future as non-existent. There wasn't any good way out. There wasn't much that I could do from here. You ever been there? I don't know where to go from here. She's Burying her one and only son without her husband and realizing that I don't have much else to go to. A heartbreaking story. And then we see Jesus who draws near. And it's, it's, it's a different drawing near than it was with the centurion. With the centurion, he was asked to draw near. The centurion came to Jesus and said, would you come and heal my servant? The, ish, the, the, the difference with this one is that we don't even see a conversation with the widow and Jesus until he's about to heal her son. He wasn't even asked to draw near to this widow. He wasn't even having a conversation with this widow. There was no invitation to, invite, to, to bring Jesus into her situation from this widow. He acted without being asked. See, the thing about compassion, guys, is compassion makes you do things that obligation won't. He was asked to do something before with the centurion, and now that he was met with an opportunity with this widow, he acted of his own volition. Why? Because he had compassion on her. What does it take, not just for a God to be impressed by our faith, but for an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God to have compassion on a creation? Somebody who is supposed to love him. Somebody who's supposed to serve him. 
We know that right now because we've been in church for a while. And we say, oh, well, he's loving God. God is love. Oh, there's all these wonderful things and all these true things. And we see here, but still, that there is a God who has compassion on creation to the point where he goes out of his way to go and see them. Not just in this story, but ultimately from heaven to earth, the incarnation, the longest distance that of any, the span that isn't even measurable by distance, the incarnation. That he went out of his way, not because of our worthiness, but he went out of his way, why? Because of compassion. That we see a God who's compassionate and walks towards this woman with, at seemingly, her own funeral. Jesus was asked to go to the centurion's house, but he inserts himself into the widow's life. We don't see an invitation from the widow, but a broken heart is enough invitation for God. It says in Psalm 116 that he draws close to the brokenhearted. When I was brought low, he saved me. He, He draws close to the brokenhearted. When I was brought low, he saved me. If there's ever been a situation where this woman was brokenhearted or when she was brought low, it would be this situation. And this woman had no opportunity to even ask for his help, but it was given anyway. Some of us in this room don't even have the power to ask for help. But I want you to know that there's a God who draws close to the brokenhearted. A God who who sees a broken heart and says, that's enough invitation for me to walk in who sees a broken situation and says, that's where I want to insert myself, who sees a broken life, who sees a messed up family, who sees a a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or a job or a family and says, that's exactly the place where I want to go. Even with no invitation, I just want to insert myself in. Why? Because he's a compassionate God. God who's moved by compassion. As I'm about to close Dairy's going to come up. And I want to analyze one part of this story. That Jesus was moved with compassion in her most broken moment. I was um, shooting archery with my friend a few weeks ago. And I don't know if you've ever shot archery before, but there are some right ways to shoot archery and some wrong ways to shoot archery. I did the wrong way to shoot archery, but I still hit the target. Thank you very much. What I did is that when you're shooting archery, you pull back the bow, right? And you're about, when you're about to release the bow, you don't want to flex this arm, the arm you're holding the bow with. Why? Because if your arm is too close this way, as soon as you let go of that arrow, if you're archery, you know that string right here is going to come back, smack you right in your arm. It's called a kiss. I don't know why it's called a kiss because that joint hurts, but it's called a kiss. That string comes back, hits you right on your forearm, and let me tell you, when I was shooting archery with my buddy, I pulled that string back, and I let go of that string. It smacks me right on my forearm, and within, not kidding, within five seconds, my arm goes, raises up within like five seconds, turns blue and purple as soon as I release that. 
And I looked at my arm and I was like, that was the fastest response to my body I've, I've ever seen in my body. That as soon as I was hurt, that the blood immediately rushed to that place, right? It wanted to heal that spot. Well, let me tell you that your body testifies about the glory of God, everybody. That as soon as you are hurt, the places where you are most in pain, that's where the blood of Jesus rushes to the fastest. And as soon as we pull that string back and it hits us right on our arm, that's where the blood of Jesus is running to. As soon as you're in that broken relationship and you feel real hurt inside, guess what? Jesus rushes to that place the quickest. As soon as we see the widow right here who has an issue and she has no future, no husband, no son, no job, no hope, we see Jesus approaching and not just because he was invited, but rushing to that place. Why? Because Jesus draws close to the brokenhearted. That's the kind of God that we have. That as soon as he sees pain, that's where he draws close. Our body is a testimony of the glory of God. That we can see if our, if our sinful body it knows enough to rush to the place where we are hurting, how much more so would an infinite God? A God who, who, who has compassion on his creation. A God who draws close to those who are hurting. A, draw, a God who draws close to those who are broken. A God who inserts himself into the pain. And, and guys, when I'm talking about compassion, I'm not saying the compassion where we just say a prayer and say, God be with you. If you. I want you to show me one time where Jesus had compassion on somebody and said, okay, I'll pray for you. And let me tell you guys something. Prayer works. I am an adamant and I believe in the power of prayer. I know it works. But I'm not talking about the prayer that Jesus probably would have done. I'm talking about the prayer that we do in culture that as soon as we see something go wrong, we said, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. My thoughts and prayers, I'm praying for you. Why? Because compassion has to be met with action. There is no other response. If compassion is not met with action, guess what, guys? That's just emotion. You just feel bad. We just feel something. And I'm, I don't know about you, but feelings have never made me feel better. Just because you feel bad for me does not help me. What I don't need is I don't need more of my love. What I don't need is I don't need more of your love. I'm sorry to break it to you. What the world doesn't need is the world doesn't need more of your love. What the world needs is the world needs more of his love. I'm not looking for more conditional, I'll pray for you, thoughts and prayers, you're with, oh no, I'm not looking for any of that love. I've had enough of that love. I'm looking for an unconditional love that inserts itself into my situation regardless of the brokenness. I'm looking for a, a, an unconditional love of a God who has compassion on his creation. I'm looking for an unconditional love that wants to touch the beer because the story doesn't end with compassion. It doesn't just end with Jesus having an emotion. It ends with action. Jesus approaches this woman's moment of, of defeat this, this woman's death, she is watching her future roll away on a cart. And Jesus sees that. Jesus watches it. And he says, don't weep. What if our compassion was met with comfort before criticism? I mean, what if we could have compassion on somebody and not first ask questions, but first comfort them? What if we could be compassionate like Jesus was compassionate, moved with compassion? And Jesus, this is the best part of the story, guys. Jesus touches the beer. He touches the, the tool, the vehicle that is transporting her future away from her. 
And this is scandalous in Jewish culture. This is absurd. Why? Because the moment that you touched death in this culture, you were now infected with death. You weren't allowed to, let alone a priest. This, a prophet, this guy who was self-proclaimed prophet, and he approaches this beer and touches it. And what happens? Instead of the death infecting Jesus, Jesus infects the death. Instead of the situation taking over Jesus, Jesus takes over the situation. You guys have an infectious God. Did you know that? That your God will change the situation before that situation changes your God. And this all happened, why? Because she was a really good person? No. This all happened, why? Because she kept a lot of rules? No. This all happened, why? Because she tithes every week? No. Why? Why, why did Jesus do this for her? Because of compassion. Because of compassion. What if we really understood what kind of compassion that our God has for us? God's not just asking us to have some emotions, to feel bad, to think some thoughts, to say thoughts and prayers, but he's asking us to act with compassion. This is a God who is impressed by faith and moved with compassion. That's your Jesus. That's my Jesus. And in this uncertain time, this shift that we're living in, I don't need more religion. I'm not looking for more religion. The world isn't looking for more religion. I don't need more actions. I need a God to draw close to me when I can't draw close to him. I need a church who's going to draw close to Jesus, who's going to ask him for big things. I need a church. We need a church who is going to be the light of the world. We need a church who's not going to cover up their light with a basket. We need a church who's not going to back down as soon as some opposition steps up. We need a church who's going to invite God into our home. And as soon as we get in the presence, we understand who he is and who we are. We need a church who is going to move towards the hurting and not away. We need a church who's going to be more compassionate than criticism. We need a church who's going to be willing to touch the beer. We don't need more religion. We have enough religion. I need Jesus. They need Jesus. There's no way that we can live this life without being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. It's impossible. We can have good intentions. Those good intentions are bad, and they're better than bad intentions, but they're not enough. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. Could we have a faith that allows us to be so close to God that doesn't distance us from him and produces religion, but brings us close to him and produces relationship where we can ask for big prayers. We can be impressive to God. I could care less about being impressive to people. We can be impressive to God. I would much rather be impressive to God than impressive to man. 
Can we be a church who looks at the pain and says, I'm not just going to look from afar, but I'm going to come close. Even when I'm maybe not strictly invited, I'm going to be Jesus to that person from a closer from far. I'm going to do what Jesus would do. I'm going to act how Jesus would act. Compassion demands action. And what we need now is we need the heart of the Father to do both. What I want to do is I want to pray for us to have the heart of the Father, the compassion that leads to action, the type of faith that when Jesus draws near, we understand who we are and who he is, which produces an impressive faith. Will you pray with me?